Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. Thanks, Steve, for sharing with us. I know we haven't shaken hands yet. Looking forward to doing that. It's good to know that we can partner both in the goodness of the gospel still, despite a geographic distance, and in its advancement here and around the world. It's a good thing. If you're joining us today for the first time, we've been looking together at the book of Ephesians, a letter written by a man named Paul to a church in a city named Ephesus, and we've been looking at what it means for us to be together in Christ. At the risk of redundancy, just to hammer it one last time, because this is our one last time for now in this book of Ephesians, at the risk of redundancy, let me just say again that Paul's laid out for us who we are as followers of Christ. And then how then shall we live? He's he's laid out how we as followers of Jesus have been together blessed with all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. And then are together bound for better days ahead in an inheritance where we get God and we get gotten by God and then God gets all the glory. That's where we're bound together. That we have been made together alive when we were once together dead. And that we have been brought together near, though we at one point were together far off. That we are therefore together heirs because we have been together loved. And with that in mind, he went on to call us to be together united. That we would be one in love and together renewed in our minds. Not loving like the world loves and loving only ourselves, but loving like Christ. Loving others because we've been loved by Christ. That we would be together filled with the Spirit. That we would be together awed by Jesus. So that we would submit to one another, to the God-given authority, leadership of our church, and that we would carry out and submit to that leadership in our personal lives, whether in our homes, in our, in our marriages, in our parenting, or in the relationships we have outside of those. We are together awed, to be together awed. But we come today to the very end of this letter, where Paul concludes with a climactic call that as believers in Jesus, as followers of Jesus, we would be finally together armed. Because seated with Christ, seated with Christ in the heavenly places, we cannot walk like Christ here on earth if we do not stand armed in Christ. So that's where we're going to pick up today in Ephesians chapter 6, and we're going to read from verse 10, all the way through to the end of the letter. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 24. And you could follow along with me as I read. This is God's word. Finally, Paul says, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. 
For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak, so that you may also know how I am and what I am doing Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's not often in our day and age and amidst our culture that is so focused on the here and now and what we can see and taste and touch. It's not often that we even have ears to hear what Paul calls us to in this passage. We're so focused on what's in front of us that we have little time for what Paul says is a war waged all around us. But today I pray that it would not be so. Today I pray that you would open our eyes, that you would open our minds, that you would open our ears, that we would hear with fresh ears this final call that we would be a church together armed. In the name of Christ. Amen. Well, many times in human history, a a single man, or on occasion, a single woman, has stood at the edge of a field of battle and called their countrymen to arms. I think of William Wallace at the Battle of Stirling Bridge when he told the Scots who he was leading in the face of the Brits who he was fighting that they were there not to make peace but to do battle. Or as probably most of us think of it in the terms that the film made famous, that they can take our lives, but they cannot take our freedom. I think of, I think of Queen Elizabeth I rousing her military against the Spanish Armada, riding her white horse, telling them, I am amongst you. 
to live or die amongst you, to lay down for my God and my kingdom and my people, my honor and blood. Or of Napoleon before the the battle of Marengo, assuring his forces that the result of our efforts, he said, will be unclouded glory and a durable peace. Or I think of Winston Churchill before the House of Commons calling the United Kingdom to wage war by sea, land, and air with all our might and with all the strength that God can give us to wage war against a monstrous tyranny never surpassed in the dark and lamentable catalog of human crime. Many times in human history, a single man On occasion, a single woman has stood on the edge of a field of battle and called their countrymen to arms. But none so much, not William Wallace or Queen Elizabeth I or Napoleon Bonaparte or Winston Churchill, none so much, so soberly and out of such necessity as the Apostle Paul who after describing who we are in Christ, seated with him in the heavenly places, and how then shall we live walking with him, like him, in love for others, when he has presumably said all there is to say, concludes this letter to the Ephesians with a call to stand, seated with Christ, walking as Christ, that we would be armed with nothing less than the armor of God that we might stand in Christ. No one ever could usher such a call because no one did so ever in the face of such an enemy. Single man looking out over the field of battle, knowing full well what was at stake. Not their very lives, but their very eternities. Calling his kinsmen in the faith to arms. In what happens to be the most unlikely list of ways. By reminding us that we stand against an enemy we cannot see. With an armor that we cannot properly, ultimately, finally wield. In a battle we cannot win. It doesn't seem like the best way to muster the troops, does it? But we'll see in the end that this is precisely the call that we need. Precisely the call that ought to conclude this book. A reminder that we stand, again, against an enemy that we cannot see. With an armor that we cannot, in and of ourselves, wield in a battle that we cannot in and of ourselves win. Let's look first at how we stand against an enemy we cannot see. Paul's initial call to arms comes in verse 10. He says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. And do that, he says, as you put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. The one that Paul earlier called the prince of the power of the air. The one leading along the walking dead of this world. And the one looking to take every opportunity to bring down those who have been made alive by God. 
Paul says, to arms, that you might stand against the strategies, the military strategies of the devil. It was perhaps the, the priest named Jerome, who was the guy who translated the Bible from the Greek into the Latin. It was perhaps Jerome who captured these strategies best when he said, just as an enemy seeks to assault those places of a city which are least protected, so that when they have broken in through them, the protected city might be captured, so also the devil seeks to break in and reach the very citadel of our hearts the very citadel of our souls through those places which he sees lying open or perhaps not shut up firmly. But this is an enemy that we cannot see. As Paul says in verse 12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against what he defines as the spiritual Forces of evil in the heavenly places. It's quite a different picture than where we so often find ourselves day by day, hour by hour, moment by moment. Because I remember today, it felt like I was wrestling against our kids. It felt for a moment, not long, but a moment, like Catherine and I were wrestling against each other. It feels like I'm constantly wrestling against neighbors or employees or employers, those I work for or work under, the government, or even as a nation that we're wrestling in some sense against the leaders of the Middle East or East Asia or darkest Africa. It feels like we're wrestling against flesh and blood, doesn't it? Who is it that comes to your mind? But Paul says, no, it's not those you think of. It's not those that come to mind. Paul says, as much as we find ourselves in conflict with those we can see, our battle is essentially against those we cannot. Because tools come in many shapes and sizes. But there is, in the end, only one mechanic, hell-bent, on the world's destruction. That's why after the Nazi seizure of power, our history books are riddled with assassination attempts on Hitler's life. Because while the fight may have been fiercest on the front lines, the force behind it was held up in the wolf's lair. Foxley, Spark, Valkyrie, all attempts, though they failed on Hitler's life, And yet Paul would say that even Hitler himself was a tool of a greater tyrant. But how often do we find ourselves in our day and age writing off even the very existence of such an enemy? I know this because I do this. Wouldn't admit this openly, but for you, we're friends. I'm slightly scared of the dark. You can't tell. I don't react. But I find myself just praying don't show up like you show up in the third world don't show up i want to continue to believe that you don't exist in the darkness of my heart in the darkness of my house it was c.s lewis who wrote 
in the preface of the screw tape letters that the greatest evil is not now done in those sordid dens of crime that Dickens loved to paint. It's, it is not done even in concentration camps or labor camps writing after World War II. In those, we see its final result. But it is conceived the greatest evil and ordered, moved, seconded, carried, and minuted in clean, carpeted, warmed, and well-lighted offices by quiet men with white collars and cut fingernails and smooth-shaven cheeks who do not need to raise their voices. Because it's in places like that, it's in places like our own country, where we write off the existence of such an enemy. And it's not a far step once we write off the existence of the enemy to then write off the need for an advocate. That's the culture in which we live. But Paul begs us to remember even as we are seated in Christ, seated with Christ and walking like Christ as he calls us to stand in Christ that our fight is against an enemy we cannot see, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The same heavenly places at the height of which Jesus was raised from the dead and seated on his throne. The same heavenly places in which we sit ourselves according to Paul's own letter. So that as much as our battle against an enemy we cannot see might seem like a strategy, no strategy to muster the troops. If our confidence is in our captain, this is precisely the call we need. So that in verse 13, Paul says, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm. If we could see the enemy, we would march. If we could see the enemy, we would advance. And we often do when we mistake the enemy for those we do see. But because this is about an enemy we can't see, Paul calls us simply to stand. And in that, to second, be armed with an armor we cannot ultimately in ourselves wield. And this is what I mean. And I, I think it's important for us to see that this armor is not ours at all. It's too much for us, especially if, we, if what we strap on is only about ourselves. Truth and righteousness, peace and faith, salvation and a sword. As if it's ours. If this is merely about what we do and what we bring to the table, we're better off in the warmed and well-lighted offices convincing ourselves and living like there's no enemy at all. If it's only about us. But as counterintuitive as it seems, Paul calls us to arms not only against an enemy we cannot see, but with an armor we cannot on our own wield because it's God's. It's God's armor. And thank God that it is. He says in verse 14, Stand therefore, having fastened on the, the belt of truth, an image from Isaiah where a descendant of the king, of King David, would eventually come girded with truth around his sides. 
made ready for battle with a belt that would stand in stark contrast to the trickery of the evil one. The truth, Paul says earlier, that was instrumental in breaking us out of the death that for so long defined us and defined our lives, our non-lives, when we were among the walking dead. The word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Put on, he says, that belt because it's God's belt. He says, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, what would protect the, the vital organs of one's core. Drawing again from Isaiah where God himself does precisely this as he puts on the righteousness, puts on righteousness as a breastplate. But there where God's righteousness equips him to carry out his justice against his enemy, here the righteousness that he offers us before him and the right living under him prepares us for the blows made against us. The same breastplate, it's God's own breastplate. But for us, it's a defense. It's a righteousness not that we attack with, but with which we are protected. Paul says, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. But again, this isn't, this isn't a peace that we go after or a, a peace that we somehow come up with on our own. Even if it is a peace that we proclaim to the watching world. Even if it's a, a peace that we stand in against the attacks of the enemy. We don't come up with this. Because it's a peace made possible only by Jesus. Chapter 2, Paul said that in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. And our renewed relationship with God, our peace with God and our peace with one another that's only ever available in Christ prepares us to stand. The image in Isaiah of the beautiful feet of those who bring the good news are of feet that move. Here, when Paul paints the image it's an image of feet that stand. That stand. That's what we're given to do. Just stand. He says in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one. Because faith is our, our safeguard against the enemy's less personalized attacks. That's the picture here. That's what a, a shield was. It's not for close combat. Not these shields. They were long shields that, that would cover you head to knee. And they were to, to put out the attack of a spear or the flaming arrows of the enemy. And they were to be shields locked with one another because we're to do this together. So when the, when the enemy is throwing things among us, trying to divide us from the, the peace that we've been given in Christ... It's our shield of faith that puts that out. It's our shield, our believing that we have a hope in Jesus and believing that this world is not all that it seems and our believing even that our enemy is not the one that we're fighting against that we can see, but the one that we can't. It's a shield of faith. It says in verse 17, and take on the helmet of salvation. Again, worn by God in Isaiah. 
and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Again and again and again, naming armor that is not ours on our own to wield. It's too much for us. Except that God wore it first. Except that God wore it first. And against this enemy we cannot see, God wore it best when he was clothed in it in Jesus. So that when we wear it, when it's given to us to wear, truth and righteousness, peace and faith, salvation and a sword, it's still not ours, but the armor of God. It's his. It's trustworthy because it's his. It's dependable because it's his. And it's given to us not to wield on our own, but insofar as we are found in Jesus. Against the enemy we cannot see. We're called to wield it, not on our own, but armed that we might somehow not bring down this enemy, but rest in the armor because of the one who wielded it on our behalf. And I realize that there's quite a bit of controversy in the 21st century deciding which one has been the best superhero film. I understand. But against the demigod movies like Thor and Superman and Wonder Woman, I much prefer the ones where the superhero rises from the rank and file of humanity. Don't you? These ones, I I just don't get it. Where God breaks into, I just don't get it. Because I can't identify with that, right? But I like the one where the superhero rises out of us. My favorite, though, one of my favorites, is Iron Man. Anybody put that at the top of their list? Yeah? The thing I like about Iron Man is that Iron Man really isn't the hero. It's the suit of armor. After Iron Man has worn it, too, the armor is not just his. But he passes it on, and if you read up on the comic books, he passes it on quite a lot. About 20 different characters or so that's wielded that armor. Not because it's theirs. Not because they, quote-unquote, have what it takes. Because the armor is dependable because it was created by Tony Stark. How much more in Jesus? How much more with the armor of God? that God himself has made out of righteousness, salvation, peace, faith. How much more with God? I remember in my university days um, a very peculiar Bible study I ended up in. One night, I don't know how I ended up there. One night in the darkness of the campus out in some back corner, a guy was leading uh, the Bible study through this passage. I don't know what this guy was doing on campus. He was not a college student. But he was leading this Bible study, and the entire Bible study consisted of him walking through this passage, having us close our eyes and visualize putting on the helmet of salvation, taking up the shield of faith, the sword of the Spirit, and wielding it against the devil. It's a very strange Bible study. Thank God that's not what Paul has in mind. These aren't our things to take up and wield as we would, 
to defeat the enemy on our own, to even march or advance on our own. They're not. They're ours to stand in. And they are all, they are all connected to what Paul's already told us God has done on our behalf in Jesus. Do you hear the echoes? Do you hear the echoes? The truth that freed you from death and brought you to life. The gospel of your salvation. The righteousness that we're now to walk in because we've been made alive in Jesus. The faith that represents both the content of what we believe and the fact that we believe it together. Both of which, God, Paul says, are a gift from God. These are all reminiscent of where we've already been. So that Paul's just telling us, the way you came in is the way you go up. The way you got to be a follower of Jesus is the way you grow. So though it may seem quite strange, Paul calls us to stand against an enemy we cannot see and stand in an armor that we do not ultimately on our own wield for ourselves. And it's actually precisely the call that we need. And it's brought to a fitting conclusion when he finally calls us to a battle we cannot win. Not because it's finally not going to be won, but because just as the enemy is one we cannot see, and the armor is not ours finally to wield, so too the battle is not ours in the end to win. You see, armed with the armor of God, what we're left to do is not advance or take the hill, but rather, what's he say? To pray. This is what we do with the armor of God. This is how we rest in the armor of God, in all that it stands for. Paul says, take it up, verse 18. Praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication, with all prayer and petition. Because when this enemy we cannot see attacks, and we are left merely to stand in this armor that we cannot on our own wield, we are left in a place of utter dependence upon the one who can. Who can see the one we can't and can challenge where we're not able to. So Paul says, pray. Paul says, pray. This is the note he ends this letter on. We often think of prayer as just another way to get God to do whatever we want. Don't we, if we're being honest? That's what prayer ends up being in most of our lives. Just another way to get God to do what we want. But in the Bible, prayer is not so much a way we get God to do what we want as much as a way that we yield to doing what he wants. It's the way we cry out to him and beg him to do what he's wanted to do and be what he's wanted to be from the very beginning, the one we run to and the one who saves us from all we need saving from. I wonder how many of you can recall in your mind the first time that mankind is found praying in the Bible. 
Could you flip through the stories of the Bible and find that first instance where humanity is found crying out to God? Well, it's interesting that in the garden, it seems like Adam and Eve didn't have to pray. God was there among them enough. Their communion with God was different, so they didn't have to pray. And that after they disobeyed him and got kicked out of the garden, that they didn't bother to pray. Because God had already given them a promise that one day a child would be born to them, to Eve, that though nipped in the heel by the devil, would eventually crush his head. So they didn't bother to pray. They had a promise, and they stood there on that promise. But after one of their sons ended up killing another, and obviously wasn't going to be the snake crusher, And then they were given a replacement, Seth. Chapter 4 of Genesis ends with a very interesting verse. Chapter 4, verse 26 of Genesis, it says this. It says that to Seth, that third son of Adam and Eve, to Seth also a son was born and he called his name Enosh. And at that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. Why? Why there? Why is that where prayer began? Because prayer at its heart is not just another way we get God to do what we want him to do, but is fundamentally our crying out to God to do what God promised to do and what only God can. When Enosh was born, I think it dawned on humanity that the offspring they were waiting for was a bit further off than they expected. And when humanity first prayed, it was only finally answered in the coming of Jesus. The Christmas story. We're about to spend five or six weeks celebrating. And when we pray today, we anticipate an answer likewise that at once looks back to Jesus coming the first time. And looks forward to his coming again. That's what it means to pray. To pray as the Bible sort of lays the foundation for that. Both as he's crushed the devil's head when he went to the cross. And when one day he'll crush him once for all when he comes back. Paul says pray. Don't advance. Don't think you can take the enemy on your own. And don't only pray for yourself, but rather, to that end, he says, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, he says, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, he says. Not taking on the devil, but proclaiming the gospel to a a walking dead world which I am an ambassador in chains, he says, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Now, you all undoubtedly have heard the story of Muhammad Ali, who found himself on a plane taxiing to take off one day. And a stewardess walked by and noticed that his seatbelt was off, asked him to rectify the situation. To which Muhammad Ali replied, Superman don't need no seatbelt. 
to which he got as good as he gave, and the stewardess replied, Superman don't need no plane. <laughs> It'd be something else if after all of this Paul was writing. And honestly, it's a, it's a piece that speaks against all of liberal academic um, scholarship that debates and wonders and calls into question whether Paul actually wrote this letter. It would be a wonder if after this entire letter, Paul calls us to pray and says, but not me, I'm good. Superman don't need no seatbelt. But this isn't a rosy picture of Paul. It's a down-to-earth, gritty, in the midst of battle, knowing that neither he nor us can do what we think we're always going to do, but that we all, Paul included, need Jesus. How different Paul. How different Paul. And so he comes to the end of this letter. Comes to the end of this letter. Tells us that we need a one unlike us who can see our enemy. Unlike us who wielded better and in a way that we can't, this armor. And unlike us who when the battle is on has the ability to win. So that we can what? So we can first know that we've been seated with Christ in the heavenly places. So that we can go from there and turn to then walk like Christ here on earth. That we might do so as we stand in Christ and all that he's done on our behalf. Let me encourage you then with three, three encouragements as we close this book of Ephesians, at least for this season. First, let me encourage you to, while seated with Christ and attempting to walk like Christ, never fail to stand in Christ. You know, we too often come into a relationship with God, a, a peace with God by grace through faith as the object of God's love, only to later slip into making it more about us than about him. As if the way to, to grow up in the faith is different from the way we got in. When in fact, where we're seated because of Christ, is where we're meant to stand. So let me encourage you, even today, to turn back to grace, because this is where we slip most often as humans. There's a reason why Paul got to write 13 of the 27 books of the New Testament. Because this message of Paul's is one we needed to hear over and over and over again. Let me encourage you, even today, to turn back to grace, to turn back to faith, to turn back to the peace that is only possible through Jesus because of his love. Let me second then encourage you not to play the hero when it comes to engaging the devil. And I think this is right in line with what Paul is saying. When he says stand, he means stand. He does not mean advance. 
especially not on our own. He is a sly fox. He is a slippery snake. He is a wolf in sheep's clothes as, at best, and often disguised, we're told, as an angel of light. So do not play the hero when it comes to engaging the devil. Do not retreat. We're not meant to retreat. Alistair Begg has this great line. There ain't no armor in the back because there ain't no retreat. But that doesn't mean we're meant to take the hill on our own, to play the hero. We're not. Do not run, but neither is it ours to advance in our own strength. As Luther put it, if we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. You ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. The Lord of hosts, his name, from age to age the same, and he must win the battle. So do not attempt to play the hero. That role is reserved for someone else. And then lastly, in light of that, let me encourage you, as we've seen time and time again in this letter, that this isn't a solo sport. As we've been together, seated with Christ, and been called to walk together as Christ, we are meant to stand together, to be together armed, locked, shield in shield, swords drawn together. And we can't do that if we continue to stand alone and pretend like we got this because we don't got this. I don't got this on my own. And we have to be willing and ready to admit that because we need each other. We need to lay bare our lives, be willing to lay bare our lives. First step towards those carpeted, warmed, and well-lighted offices is convincing ourselves first that we don't need it. And then we make the mistake of thinking that there is no enemy to fight and eventually give up God altogether. But I don't got this. And I hope you can admit that too. This is more and more what we want our church to be about. A renewed, a renewed honesty. That the gospel got us where we are and the gospel is going to get us on. And that it's all up to Jesus. Because we don't have what we often make or think that we do. So let me encourage you. This is not a solo sport. We need one another. Let me pray to that end. Heavenly Father, I pray more and more that you would knit us together as a body. I thank you. You even for Steve here today, for the years of foundation work that he did, I pray that you would continue to capitalize on what you've invested in this body, that we would not slip back to old ways of loving only ourselves or thinking we got what we don't got, but that we would always and ever look to Jesus. In his name I pray, amen. Thank you for joining us. For more information about our church, please visit our church's website at kishbible.org. 
That's K-I-S-H-Bible.org.